Snuff Production. In roughly three weeks' time, Treasurer Jim Chalmers will deliver his first budget. The 44-year-old has been tipped as one to watch since he was a 20-something joining his local ALP branch. But what drives the country's new main economic manager? Whose advice does he listen to? And how do you answer a question as big as how to spend everybody else's money? I've known Jim for many years now. We were colleagues as staffers during the Rudd and Gillard government. So this isn't going to be Sarah Ferguson on 7.30 style interview. But what I have tried to do, and I think I've succeeded, is get to the bottom of how this treasurer thinks, how he makes his decisions. I got to ask Jim Chalmers about everything from the cost of living and housing prices to childcare and the role of women to climate change and why politicians never seem to talk about young people on budget night. My name's Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Jim Chalmers, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thanks, Jamila. Nice to see you and hear you. What a pleasure to have you on the show because you and I have known each other quite a long time and it is not every day that someone you know becomes the treasurer of Australia. I hope it's a little while yet till another person that you know becomes the treasurer of Australia. Long, long, may, <laughs> long may this continue, Jamila. Um, we have known each other for a long time now and you were involved in the job summit that we convened a little while ago and I really appreciate that. It's been a real buzz to see how well you're going. Oh, that's lovely. Tell me about your experience coming to government though, because I know you've been asked all the political questions and all the economic questions about what you were going to face, and we'll get into that. But at a purely personal level, politics is something that for a lot of people feels far away. You've been connected to it for a long time, but to reach such a peak like that so young like, was there a moment when you got the job where you were like, oh, God, it's me now. Like, I'm, I'm the one. <laughs> there was, actually, and it wasn't when you might think. On election night, it was a bit of a blur, and you spend a lot of time with local supporters and all of that, and so it doesn't really hit you on the night. Uh, on the next day, the Treasury Secretary came out to my house to brief me in Logan City in Queensland, and we've had a laugh about you know, people think that becoming the treasurer is glamorous, but uh, we spent the 30 minutes before the treasury secretary arrived cleaning uh, purple crayon off the uh, off the walls that uh, <laughs> little Jack had, had arranged for Stephen Kennedy's arrival. Uh, it didn't really even hit me then. Um, for me, it was when we were on the Monday morning after the election and Laura were, and I were in a car going up the long driveway to the Governor General's place to get sworn in. And that's when it hit me. Yeah. When you have been working for something for a long time, as you'd appreciate, there is a sort of a very, very brief, very fleeting sense of satisfaction. And then uh, it doesn't last long. You're thinking about trying to do the job well. But for me, it was driving up the the driveway to the Governor General's house because we got sworn in at nine o'clock on the Monday morning after the election, which is historically quick. Uh, because Anthony Albanese had to go see Joe Biden and other world leaders in Tokyo. And so we got sworn in more or less immediately and that's when it kind of hit me. What about from a professional perspective? Because one of the things that 
happens when you come to government is that suddenly you've got access to documentation and what's going on behind the scenes and you have that moment where you get to see what you didn't get to in opposition. You get to see where the bodies are buried. You get to open the books. Was that a shock? The process of it wasn't a shock and that's because uh, I'm very lucky. I mean, you and I worked together in a former government and, you know, I worked with a lot of the Treasury people that are there now. Mm. I worked closely with a Treasurer, Wayne Swan, and I, I saw for five and a half years, almost six years, I worked closely with the Treasury, the Reserve Bank, the economic regulators and all of that. And so my big advantage, something I'm really grateful for, is that actually being the Treasurer, there's not much that kind of surprises me about the job itself. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the numbers are confronting. You know, you open, you get some advice when you first arrive as Treasurer and some of that is confronting. And you think about how you're going to manage it and sequence it, prioritize it, how you're going to deal with some of these challenges. But actually being the treasurer, the big advantage that I have um, is that I've, I've been in this portfolio before and I'm not kind of daunted by the actual job itself. You have to take a perspective to what the government does that is very much across government, right? There's a real centrality to the portfolio you, you hold. You know, if you come to government and you're the Minister for Climate Change, you know what your focus has to be. Whereas for you, you sort of almost have to have a step back and think about what you're trying to achieve as a government as a whole. Before we get to some of the, the nitty gritty of different bits and pieces, you've got a budget coming up in October. What's the kind of philosophy that you take to that? How do you think about how the government chooses to spend all of our money? Yeah, I think at two levels. You know, at a, at a policy level, uh, my job is to make sure that we fund the commitments that we made, you know, whether it be childcare, climate change, TAFE and training, is to make sure that we are keeping faith with those commitments and funding those commitments. And so at a policy level, it, it's still relatively clear, even as we work across a whole bunch of different portfolios. You know, we, we meet this thing called the Expenditure Review Committee. It meets, you know, most weeks, uh, but in the lead up to the budget, it meets two or three or four times a week. And so we have ministers in and they talk to us about their portfolios and we try and deliver. We try and fund the commitments that, that we make as a government. But at a personal level, and this is what I find really enjoyable about the Treasury role, is that we've got all these great colleagues and I like seeing the Treasury as trying to help them succeed in their portfolios. You know, you mentioned climate change minister, you know, it's good for the government, more importantly, good for the country if we do something meaningful on climate change. And so the opportunity to kind of work with Chris Bowen in that, in that example is one that I really value. And so you do have a finger in every pie and, you know, sometimes you, you've got to juggle a lot of different things, but we've got great ministers who've got great policies to deliver and we want to be helpful. And that's our role. Who sits on your personal board, so to speak, when you're going about, you've got a, obviously a team of advisors, you've got a department to back you up, you've got your ministerial colleagues, but when you're turning ideas over in your head and you're trying to work out where the savings are, where the spending should be, who do you talk to? Who do you consult? Who do you listen to? Well, I'm really lucky because for the whole time, my whole adult life really, and you would have a version of this in your professional life, you know, when you have people who have been through what you're going through and they're prepared to encourage you and help you, then that's a really fortunate place to be in. And for me, you know, I've got two former treasurers that I speak to 
you know, very frequently, Paul Keating and Wayne Swan. Uh, and that's a gift because there's not that many people who actually know what it's like to be the treasurer of Australia. And those two guys yeah. did it for a long time. And so I, I talk to them frequently. I would talk to both of them at least weekly, uh, sometimes more frequently than that if there's a big issue running. There's a heap of people. But I think those two former treasurers really, you know, having access to those guys makes a big difference. You've inherited a whopping great debt as treasurer, which must make for really good times for you <laughs> thinking about what you want to achieve. How do we move a conversation in this country away from a basic debt bad, deficit bad, to a place where we think about some debt as necessary and useful? Yeah, I think that's a perfect question because I am worried about that trillion dollars of debt, partly because as interest rates go up, it costs more and more for us to service that debt, Mm. as people know, in their own budgets. And so, you know, that $20 billion a year or whatever it might be, uh, prevents us investing that in other areas. So I think the debt matters. But yeah. where I think your question is bang on is we need to think not just about the quantity of spending, but the quality of spending. You know, and if you think about policy areas like childcare, where you've had a long-standing interest, you know, you get a lot of value out of investing in childcare. And so borrowing to improve childcare delivers a dividend for families but also for the economy. And so that's quality spending. Borrowing money to splash around the country at the whim of Barnaby Joyce is not, by anyone's estimation, quality spending. And so what I've tried to do, and you know, I've got more work to do on this front, is to help people understand that we care about how much debt there is, but we also care about what that debt is being used to fund. And in my view, if it's being used to fund childcare or cheaper and cleaner energy or better opportunities in TAFE and training or a better NBN or all of these other things that we value as a society, then that's worth it. But that means trimming back on some of the areas where we're not getting bang for buck out of all this money that's been borrowed. Cost of living is leading the news bulletins every night at the moment. And I think most of us know from just chatting to people in our own lives and in our own communities that there are a whole lot of people struggling and it's not just the poorest Australians. There are a lot of people who are suddenly realising they have to tighten their belts. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Well, firstly, I mean, the diagnosis is right. You know, we've got inflation which is high and rising. That means the prices that people are paying for the essentials are going up. And our challenge is to provide a bit of relief for people uh, without splashing so much cash around that the Reserve Bank raises interest rates more. So the Reserve Bank takes its decisions independently. And one of the things they think about is how much spending there is in the economy and whether they need to wind that back. And so governments need to be careful not to inject so much cash with no strings attached that it makes the job of the Reserve Bank harder. And so that's the balance we have to strike. And so the, the best way through there and the reason why we've settled on the cost of living package that we have, which will be in the, the budget in a few weeks' time, is if you provide cost of living relief via childcare costs, then that also has an economic dividend. It doesn't make inflation worse. It makes it easier for people to uh, balance the family budget, but it also has an economic dividend because we want more people to be able to make that choice to work more and more if they want to do that. Uh, so that's got an economic dividend. You know, making medicines cheaper, which is our other big cost of living measure, 
uh, that has a health dividend, obviously. You don't want people dodging scripts or making themselves unhealthy because they're substituting out the cost of their medicines for the cost of food or something like that. And so that's why our cost of living measures are all about what can we do to make it easier for people at a time when prices are going through the roof, but how can we do it in a way that helps the economy too? And the third way that we do that is to try and get wages burning again. Uh, one of the reasons why people are in a hole in their family budgets is because their wages have been stagnant for the best part of a decade now. So as inflation goes up, wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living. That's why a lot of our policy is about how do we responsibly get wages moving again. We've got a whole bunch of young people who listen to the briefing and the weekend briefing. And while at a personal level, I so appreciate the idea of investing to make childcare costs cheaper, having paid a whole bunch for that over the last however many years. And as someone who takes a lot of medicines, I appreciate them being cheaper too. But for a lot of young people, neither of those two things apply. And I think often people in their 20s especially feel like they're kind of left out on budget night. Like there's a lot of talk about families and pensioners and suddenly you're sitting there going, yeah, but I'm 20-something. The number one thing that always comes back to us at the briefing when we talk to young people about the economy is Can the I guess? they feel like they will never, yeah. It's housing, isn't it? Yes, yes, it's they will housing. never own a house. They feel like <laughs> it's impossible. And I, that makes sense to me, right? Like my parents bought their first house at, but they were both 21. They bought a nice house in suburban Canberra for like, I don't know, $12,000 or something like that. Uh, and then they sold it 10 years later for $200,000. Yeah. That is not going to be the reality for this generation yeah. So this is the thing that I'm working on in addition to all of the commitments that we've made where we're trying to deliver them in the October budget and also trying to get a handle on this debt that we were talking about before. A lot of my time spent at the moment is working with my colleague, Julie Collins, who's the housing minister, to work out how do we actually properly shift the needle on how many houses are being built in this country. And the best way in my view to do that is to bring the state governments, the local governments together with the building industry, who I've been speaking with frequently, and with the superannuation funds to try and work out, can we agree how many extra homes we need to start to take the pressure off, whether it's rent or housing affordability? How do we make sure that those homes are in areas where there are jobs? Because we don't want particularly young people to have to commute for two hours from somewhere they can afford to live to wherever their job is. That's mm. a big, big part of the challenge. And so I'm trying to bring people together with Julie Collins to work out, can we get superannuation to invest in affordable housing where people need it, where people are working in a way that delivers good returns for superannuation fund members at the same time as it fixes this perennial problem that we've got. And I understand the frustrations that people have about housing. And we've got a bunch of policies already, help to buy policy, a policy for social housing. We've got all of these funds, but we need to do more than that to properly shift the needle on housing. Our near-term challenges are wages and inflation and skills shortages. But I think that the kind of big issue that we've got over the next, whatever it is, five years or so, is how do we build enough houses where the jobs and opportunities are? We've actually got really low unemployment in this country at the moment, but we're having trouble connecting people with opportunities and housing's part of that and that's why I'm spending a heap of my time on it.
If we take a step back from that and look at a broader context and the experience of younger people, particularly of millennials and Gen Z as they as they come through and come into adulthood, it's part of the problem that for decades we have had governments of, of both stripes that have built policies that favour baby boomers, that are built to deliver for the biggest generation because they're the biggest voting block. We have had this issue where we've got this big chunk of people who were born immediately after the Second World War moving through stages of life. And I think that they have been a priority for governments of both political persuasions. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but we should be able to deliver for people in aged care and health chemists uh, without ignoring uh, the legitimate generational angst that there is about some of the things that we've been talking about. And our job, I think particularly as a new government, and people have high expectations of new governments, is to make sure that there's no generation which is ignored by our policies. And housing is a big part of that. And climate change is a big part of that. And skills and training is a big part of that. The issues around discrimination, I think, are central to that as well. And so we want people to keep us up to the mark on this. We don't want to be seen as a government for one generational cohort or another. Even in our own team, Matt, we've got a mutual friend in Annika Wells who has been uh, interested in this area of policy for a long time. How do we make sure that in looking after the baby boomer generation, we're not ignoring the millennials? And that's a challenge for us, but it's a challenge we're up for because, you know, we understand that one of the reasons why trust has broken down in politics is the sense that politics is for someone else other than me. Uh, And I think that feeling is most pronounced in the millennial generation. So we've got a responsibility to try and turn that around. And I think it's probably most pronounced in one area of policy more than anything else, and that's around climate change and action on climate change. I think there was a lot of optimism uh, around election time and some hope that we were going to see some more movement from this government than the previous government. But young people as a block uh, have a pretty high standard and high level of expectation when it comes to action to reduce emissions. Is Labor going to get more ambitious? Well, I think we're plenty ambitious uh, already, but I understand and I, you know, in, in some ways I kind of welcome the idea that people want us to do more and sooner. You know, that's welcome pressure. We want people to keep us up to the mark when it comes to our level of ambition on climate change. You know, 43% by 2030 is an ambitious target. And we took political risks to announce it in opposition and to implement it in government. And so I feel like we've struck the right level of ambition. But if, you know, the idea that there are people out there that want us to do more, that's good. That's good. Keep us up to the mark. There are a lot of people who want us to do less. And we like the idea of trying to strike that right balance. This government is the best chance of ending the climate wars of any government that I've seen in my adult life and some of them I've worked for and I've been through and got the scars uh, in other roles from uh, other attempts to land something meaningful here where we didn't get it done. And I feel like we're going to get it done this time uh, and that's because we've struck the right level of ambition, we've got the right level of commitment, we believe in it and I think people will see the fruits of that commitment in coming years. We're short on time, so I'm going to ask one more question. We've got a fair idea of what you want to spend on in this October budget that's coming up. Where are the savings going to come from? We're working through that, uh, but there's some trimming we can do in, there are these funds called discretionary funds, which is kind of treasury speak for when a government announces a massive bucket of money and then ministers just get to hand it out. 
Uh, there are a bunch of those that our predecessors turned into a bit of an art form, uh, which we are going to trim back. There are some savings there. There are some other savings that come from recognising that a lot of the stuff that has been promised in recent years will take longer to build, for example. So there are some savings there, what the economists call reprofiling of spending, you know, delivering, but perhaps delivering a little bit later uh, than what has been committed to. There are some tax changes. Multinational tax changes will deliver some benefits for the budget as well. You could get rid of the stage three tax cuts. Well, Maybe. you're not the first to pitch that up, Jamila. Uh, it's, not, it's not an original <laughs> idea. Oh, look, we haven't changed our position on that. But again, I mean, I, I, one of the things I'm trying to do differently, and this is probably a, probably a good point to end on, right, is I've, you know, I've observed over a long period of time this kind of politics as usual, which says that if somebody has a different view, then you've got to run them down. And there are people who've got a firm view well-motivated people who I like and trust who've got a view about those tax cuts. Uh, and I think we should have a conversation about spending, about investment, about taxes. And so people will raise those issues with me from time to time. Our position hasn't changed on them, uh, but we should be capable of having a conversation about the future of the budget. And so I don't get too worried about people raising it the way they have. Well-motivated people think we should do something different there. Uh, I listen to everyone but our position on it hasn't changed. Jim Chalmers, good luck for your first budget and thanks so much for being our guest. Thanks for the opportunity, Jamila. All the best. That's it for my conversation with Jim Chalmers. Folks, this is the bit where I tell you to go watch someone's movie or TV show or read their book or download their podcast. So um, I suppose I just say that you should tune into the budget, right? <laughs> You should tune into the budget, everyone. Uh, Seven o'clock, Tuesday, the 25th of October. It'll be on all the TV channels. Don't go away. The weekend list is coming up. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and I know because she's cool and all about town and has lots of free time. She's got so many great recommendations, don't you, Bron? My God, you're building me up too high, Jam. But my first recommendation is a docuseries on Disney Plus called Welcome to Wrexham. It's about two actors. I'm sure you've heard of at least one of them, Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds. So Rob McElhaney, he's from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Ryan Reynolds is um, from everything. Deadpool, I think it might be his <laughs> biggest one. They're buying a soccer club in a town called Wrexham in Wales. So it's about the docuseries covers them going to this small working town in Wales. People in this town absolutely adore this soccer club. It's about, you know, the journey of them getting the club, meeting the local fans, them trying to build the club to be better and hopefully move to a higher league. I don't know. I'm really not a sports fan at all. But it really had me hooked. I feel like if you're into Ted Lasso. I was about to say, it's got Ted Lasso vibes. Totally. It's like a real life Ted Lasso vibes. Um, yeah, you should totally get around this show. It is so interesting. What was the connection between you and Wrexham Football Club? We had no direct connection. It was just a feeling. What me and my dad thought was because Wrexham's red, Deadpool's red. That's the real reason. Sorry. <laughs> That sounds super fun. Folks, I want to recommend something totally different and that is Spring Fling, which is the new festival that is coming from the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. It's going to run from the 2nd until the 11th of November. 
and it celebrates the power of storytelling with really fun, some serious, some silly conversations about big ideas. And the whole concept behind this festival is that Melbourne has had two of the most rubbish years imaginable and finally the city is waking up again. The city is coming to life and there is so much going on. I am particularly looking forward to the opening gala which includes short, really short, like not long boring speeches, like short nuggets of excellence from Maxine Beniba-Clark, Lionel Fogarty, Chloe Hayden, Nakia Louie, Erin Jean Norville, Anne Summers, Claire Bowditch. Like it is a seriously good lineup and so is the rest of the festival. The tickets are on sale now and I reckon they will move fast. Uh, that sounds awesome. My second recommendation is Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast with Matt O'Kine and Alex Dyson, the former hosts of Triple J Breakfast. Now, you may think I might be biased because I also produce that show um, as well as the weekend briefing. I can objectively say I love the show. Well, you've been on before. We've had you as a guest. It is honestly so much fun. We have new episodes out Monday to Friday. So after you finish getting your news from the briefing every day, you can then flick over to Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast for some comedy. There's always great guests. We have listeners call through with some amazing stories. It is honestly just so much fun and some light entertainment every morning, as well as we cover some topical news stories that are going on. It is seriously such a great show. And once you finish doing a bit of briefing news and then heading over to Matt and Alex for the fun stuff, if you then become obsessed with the guys, then you can come back to the weekend briefing to hear Matt Okine, who I interviewed, um, Oh, it would have been a few months ago now, but if you scroll back in the feed, you'll be able to find it. My final recommendation for the weekend is the Hijinks Hotel. Spoiler, not an actual hotel. The Hijinks Hotel is like an interactive game experience. For people who hear that and shut down and go, I don't like computers, there's no computers. Otherwise, I wouldn't recommend it. It is housed within this part theatre, part games room, part hotel. And it feels like an old school New York hotel. Like you've got the, you know, the bellhops in the red and the gold and there's the black and white checkered floors and all the rest. You come into the hotel and you can get drinks at the bar and great food and it's just a really fun, silly, kind of quirky kind of atmosphere. And then when you're ready to play the games, you and your mates, usually after a few drinks, I would imagine, head into the rooms. You go into each room for five minutes only. Most people play six rooms at a time and you don't know what you're walking into. And each room is wild. Like one of them is like the Titanic and it's sinking and there's water and there's furniture going everywhere. There was another one we went into where it was just all pitch black except for coloured lights on the wall moving in certain patterns and you had to hit them in particular orders. Uh, there are some that are like old school spooky carnivals with the big clown faces and you've got to throw balls. So it's one of those ones where you're just living your ordinary life and then you go into this small, really high stakes moment and everyone is so focused on one task and then five minutes later you're like, oh, it's over. Oh, Wow. Why did we do that? Why did we take that so seriously? What are we doing? Anyway, uh, I went to some mates last week. It's so much fun. It's in Sydney in Alexandria and there is one coming to Chadston in Melbourne later this year. That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you so much for sharing your attention with us. We hope that you enjoyed today's interview and that some of those recommendations put you in a good position going into the weekend. If you want more of the briefing, then the best thing to do is to head to the listener app, download that and you can follow us there. Or of course, you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a lovely rating and review if you're feeling generous this weekend. 
We will be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Thank you so much for your company. Have a wonderful weekend. Listener.